Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome coach Daniel Sokolowski, the assistant coach of the Chemnitz Niners in Germany's top professional division, the BBL. Daniel is here today to talk about implementing a defensive system, building great habits, establishing trust and credibility, using film for player development, and much, much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we break down much of the best that we've seen throughout the world of basketball. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Coach Daniel Sokolowski. I started reaching out to people. I wanted to find out how to get into the G League, NBA video room, professional basketball in general. And everybody's advice was go to, go to Vegas, go to Vegas for summer league, mingle, you know, try to shake some hands, get in, make some contacts, reach out to people. So I get on that fateful plane and my life has never been the same. On the, on the flight to Vegas, the recently hired head coach of Parma, a Latvian coach named Nikolai Mazers, boards the plane. I obviously don't know who he is, but he's got a big basketball and Russian letters on his polo, and he sits across the aisle from me. And he he looks exhausted, like he's he's flying from Riga through Munich through whatever. I mean, he's got he's jumping through hoops. I find out later, and then he just wants to close his eyes. And you know, you got me, who's like, I will network with everybody. <laughs> that is my mindset. So you know, I tap him on on the leg because he's got his headphones on. And I, you know, I see their Russian letters. I mean, my parents are immigrants from the Soviet Union, so I grew up speaking Russian. So I, you know, I could decipher that. And I asked, "Excuse me, are you are you a coach? Are you heading to Las Vegas?" And uh, yeah, it became yes. He got hired in in Russia, and I started speaking with him in Russian to kind of just like flex that that yeah. muscle a little bit. And then you know, further serendipity fell into place where like he was traveling with a young. Latvian player who was going to be playing in the showcase, the Eurobasket Summer League, uh, where I was going to be coaching. I was going to coach in the Eurobasket Summer League. We ended up spending the next few days in the gym together. He needed somebody who spoke Russian, spoke English, could do video, could do individual work, could be the strength coach. Could, and I, I kind of just right place, right time. I checked every box. And a few days later, he offered me a job. And then that's where I meet Ryan <laughs> for the first time. I don't know anything about European basketball. So I start to kind of look at the league and I see some familiar names like Seska and, and Locomotive. And I say, oh, okay, I guess this is pretty good. And at the same time, I ended up getting in touch with Ryan because he worked at Hanau and uh, Simon Cody, somebody had connected me with him. I was interviewing to be his assistant in Hanau at the same time. And I was, I was reaching out to Ryan because Simon said he's going to be out in Vegas, connect with him. And I'm trying to consult with him, like, oh, what should I do? 
I don't know what my role would be, you know, this dual strength conditioning slash assistant role in Russia versus I know Simon is an American coach. He's going to give me a lot to do. What do I do? And Ryan's like, don't be an idiot. You <laughs> like Americans don't get a chance to work in Russia. It's one of the best leagues in Europe. Like yeah. this is a no brainer. If they offer you the job, you take it. And, you know, life has never been the same. So, I mean, honestly, to, for anybody who listens to this, the, the nugget to take away from that besides being stupidly lucky is I went about trying to going, – going into Las Vegas, I was trying to paint a portrait of myself as a young coach who had as many skills as possible. So, like, you, you know, you're looking at small, low major Division One or Division Two. You're looking at the small budget clubs of Europe. You're even looking at the G League. It was a time where, you know, people with limited budgets were looking for people who could do as many things as possible, wear as many hats as possible. And you try to make yourself attractive in that way, be cheap and be able to do everything. And that's, you know, what I tried to do. You mentioned you got your start in Parma, then you moved to Rashawn in the Israeli league. And now you're uh, your first season with uh, Chemnitz and the BBL. Um, what are just comparing and contrasting the leagues is there a big style difference that you've noticed uh, coaching in Russia and Israel and now over in Germany? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I had, you know, two years in Russia, it, you know, just by the nature of, you know, everything is, it's, it's a market-based sport, you know, it's and everything is dictated by budget more, more, more or less because the bigger the budget, you can hire a better coach, you can afford better imports, uh, the quality of the local Russian player is, is a little bit dubious, you know, for a country that big, the youth system is what is their undoing. Why they, you know, with that many people, they don't have the quality of local player that they should. Um, but that's a, a different point. Um, yeah. The Russian league after two years, they're going to Israel. I immediately felt after a few weeks of competition, it's like you can get away with more and still win in Israel, the, the, the tactical quality, the level of detail, the physicality, the depth of the teams. And this, most of this is, is dictated by budget and, or quality of coaching or whatever it may be is, 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 is so different between those two leagues. You just, at some points it felt like we were just being less bad than the other team. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think somebody put this very poignantly about the Israeli league. Uh, it's that so many of the teams are have the have the small market little guy survival survivor mentality. It almost mirrors the 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 ethos of the country as like this little guy that's trying to stand alone independently in the midst of of all the turmoil around them. And it's like, well, we don't have to be good at we what we do if we can disrupt what you do. Which is why Israel, uh, you see so much matchup zone, so much so many so many tactical defenses just try to distort and take you out of what you want to do offensively. Uh, a lot of switching, a lot of matchup zone, three, two zone, uh, trapping, extensive post trapping, you know, league. Uh, so they're just trying to muck up the game to a great degree. Most of the teams, most of the teams you talk about Maccabi Tel Aviv and Hapoel Jerusalem, they can play more classically. The rest of the league tries to just, you know, to, to make it ugly, win ugly. And I think you look at the BTB, 
It's a lot of classically tactical teams, precision, uh, moving the ball side to side. You'll see Euro motion. You'll see, you know, your classic pick and roll attack concepts, the things that you guys are espousing from, you know, Obradovich and Kokoskov and all these coaches. It's classic tactical European basketball in the VTB with highly, highly skilled players and uh, the level of discipline and patience. You won't see players just break off a play, come down and jack up a shot. Otherwise, they're sub and they might, be, they might be on the next plane home if they do it again. You know, there's a different level of, of discipline and structure. The Israeli league is more free-flowing. And it's why you'll see four imports versus six for most of the teams. Those four Americans are heavily relied upon to be facilitators, creators, scorers. So now yeah, being on the other side of the coin or re- remembering myself when we're scouting players uh, in between seasons and we're looking at the Israeli stats, my Latvian coach is like, yeah, take the Israeli stats, you know, with a grain of salt. They, they, they kind of just get out there. They get up and down. They play. And I saw that to a degree. I wouldn't say it's completely run and gun. It just gets messy because, more from, because of the defensive tendencies. And now – I don't know, we're, we're five games into five, six games preseason. In, the, in, in Germany, we played two Pro A teams for three or four BBL teams. And guys, you know, teams are still rounding into shape. It's hard to tell, but mm-hmm. even I've watched a few, a few games of other teams, you know, for scouting, like, you know, Ulm and Frankfurt, teams we haven't played against. And then we played Wurzburg, Kreisheim, Bayreuth. And you, you get a sense that it's more vtb than israel it's very more classically european in that sense the quality of player is lower but the quality of coaching seems very high so far and we haven't really even gotten to anything tactical any scouting we haven't you know dug too deep either side us or the opponent in preparing for us so it's interesting to see how deep the chess match goes but you know i'm familiar with level of coaching in the bbl and there's been an influx of powerhouses like trinkieri coming back to the league that you know uh, it's going to be fun. You know it's going to be fun. What is, uh, in the VTB Liga and in Israel, when, when you play the Seskas, when you play, like you said, the Locomotives or the uh, Maccabis, what are the things that stick out with those clubs that obviously that they're Euro, Euro League or Euro Cup in Locomotives case? Positional size, usually. It's depth, though I wouldn't say that's, that works in Locos' favor, but that's just them. The rest of the rest of the, the high-budget teams, they, they, they recruit for depth, uh, positional size, you know, skill level. Like, it's extremely frustrating to be able to guard those teams well for 19 seconds and then still give up two or three points just because individual talent takes over at that point. And you play, you know, great offense beats great, beat great defense. And, and those moments are, are frustrating. You know, like the, 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 the blossoming of the of the prospect of Denny Avdia happened before, before my eyes, like the, uh, at post post quarantine, he was, he was extremely impressive. You know, he's like six, nine, six, 10 athletic, but now he's starting to make shots. He's initiating, uh, action in the ball screen. They didn't let him do that much in the Euro league, but in Israel, they really let him go, especially after we came back from quarantine. So I think it's, you can guard them well. And then, physicality talent athleticism takes over you're giving up offensive rebounds like othello hunt i think back to the championship game and it wasn't even you know the classic guys it was amari amari stoudemire kind of dusting off the nba all-star dust you know armor and he was he just you know 
throwing us out of the way, swimming through, grabbing offensive rebounds. The refs kind of handed him a foul call he didn't deserve that basically decided the game because we ended up losing by five. I still have nightmares. I <laughs> let's, let's, let's move on. But it, it, yeah, that's, I think that's the kind of the crux of what the, the little guy has to do everywhere in Europe, whether it be Europe or Israel, to beat the big guy. You have to get a little tactical. You have to get a little lucky. You have to make some shots. Uh, but if, if you get, you know, you, you have, especially defending, defending without fouling because depth is never going to be on your side, on your side in those matchups. But you also, and it's interesting, can, one of the big advantages is that those big classical teams, you can almost exploit their discipline. Like, you know, they're going to run their actions all the way through. They're not going to break things off early when, so you can, you can cheat a little bit almost defensively where you're, you're saying, okay, we can go under the first ball screen because they're not going to immediately shoot. And that you get to start getting into layers of your, 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 your scouting and your tactical defense, just because you kind of know that they're going to be patient to make sure they get, if it's a post play, the ball goes to the post. If it's a shooting action, they're going to get all the way through it and run Scotty off, you know, like, and we can start top locking and playing from there. So it becomes a fun chess match, but those games are never easy. I'd love to talk about building a defensive system from the start. So yeah. you guys have just started not too long ago, and I'm wondering about your process to building your defense from both a tactical standpoint as well as a defensive mindset standpoint. So, you know, whether it's ball pressure, getting in gaps, being aggressive, taking charges, the, those kind of skills along with how we're tactically going to defend people. Can you go through kind of how you start to build both of those things? Yeah, it was it was interesting how uh, this opportunity, this situation kind of kind of found me at the right time. And it's like, if I was going back to Rishon, it's kind of be going to be my request to take more responsibility for one side of the ball, whether it be offensive or defensive. And I kind of, I knew it might be easier for the coach to push the defensive end of the ball. Uh, and I just kind of started writing out a defensive curriculum. You know, how do you build it? What do you, what do you ask for? And I, I saw it as, you know, very rudimentary building up from one-on-one -on -one what we want on-ball defense to look like, how you, how you measure the, the, the distance if the ball is live, if the ball is in triple threat, uh, you know, chasing guys out of screens, building up each of your shells, then 2v2-on-2 two two, positioning, stunting guys out of drives and recovering through the passing lane. You know, my inspirations really defensively come almost exclusively from the ACB. I think it's easily the best league. Uh, domestically in, in Europe and maybe one of the best, it's some of the best basketball period. Um, and then, you know, I came in with a ton of ideas, some a little too far out there, you know, for, for most coaches and some uh, applicable and kind of that, that, ex that back and forth, that dialogue between myself and Rodrigo, you know, he's given me a lot of rope to, to hang myself with and we'll see, we'll see how well it goes about applying some, some of the more creative, uh, unconventional ideas versus, you know, you are, it's almost like a classical college or high school concept that you say, okay, if I, I've got a new job or I'm interviewing for a job, I'm going to go look at the team that the last team that won my league. And I'm going to go figure out how, you know, game plan, how I would beat them or what I would take from them. And you look at like Alba and how they defended the ball screen and you see 
a lot of teams moving in that direction where there's that, that quick show uh, you're, where you're creating some hesitation in the ball handler. And that, you know, if you're aggressive on the ball, we call it the battle of the ball for the ball handler. You're aggressive, you get to the hip, you'll be able to slip back through that gap and level them off and there's no advantage. And you get into building your, your shifts from the weak side, stunting from the strong side or inverted, depending on if it's away from the two, towards the two. Uh, it, it, but it really, start, it really has to start with the mentality, you know, just that dig down. And, and, and I think because we had so many returners, we didn't go through maybe all of the rudimentary steps where we, and they had done, they had, you know, our German guys had put in a real body of work in the summer before I even got here. So, you know, we didn't spend as much time in the 1v1, 2v2, 3v3. We kind of moved into four-on-four shells and five-on-five shells. And then, you know, these are things that we're still ironing out, kind of phases of the shot clock and how, you know, things that also that, you know, Rodrigo has illuminated to me about, you know, uh, whereas I've, I've worked in places where we kind of thought about uh, how you'd like to guard an initial ball screen and then everything after it. And then maybe if there's a late clock ball screen, there's another coverage. But uh, breaking it up into just the, the thirds of the clock, first eight seconds, middle eight seconds, last eight seconds, how, how, each of, how the clock dictates our, dictates our coverage more than anything else. Uh, allows us to be very consistent, you know, not making distinctions based on personnel. Some may say that's a tactical error. Uh, Rodrigo played for a legendary coach, Don Meyer, in the, in the States. He yeah. played at, at Lipscomb when it was wow. Division Two. Yeah, not many people know that. And uh, he said a Meyerism was keep it simple, stupid, you know, yeah. kiss. <laughs> And, and he reminds me of that as often as possible. The less information these guys have to play with, the faster their feet can be, you know, and that delicate balance between keeping it simple and, and, and being accurate in what you do versus having the tactical information you need to be successful and where that line is, it really depends on your personnel. We have a very young group uh, that is, you know, extremely skilled, extremely talented, but, you know, inexperienced you know, rears its ugly head when there's too much information. They have to stop and think. Now we're slow. We're undermining. You know, we're undermining our. We're undoing our advantage by making them think too much. So we try to keep the core tenets of our defense as simple as possible. Aggressive, maximum effort, active hands. You know, you know, you. What gets measured, what's important gets measured. You know, kind of. So you know, we're tracking deflections, consecutive stops things that are important to us and trying to reiterate them daily. You know, what, you know, we, we'll get whatever we emphasize is, an, is another Rodrigoism that he's he repeating constantly. And there's a lot of truth to it. With how complex the offenses are that you go against and you trying to keep the defense as simple as possible, what types of on-court communication do you try to teach your guys like call you don't have to tell us the exact calls obviously for oh, no. yeah, but how do you drill that into them so that they can communicate the actions against complex offensive sets i hearken back to your podcast with mike taylor where he talks about uh and i think about matt painter uh, in purdue they they have this absurd uh set play that where they have essentially like 
15 consecutive different actions that you might face over the course of, of, of a game and they put them all in one play and they make that a shell and coach Taylor has the 40 actions that over time they will work on. It's like, you're going to, it, the complexity comes from timing, speed, sequence angles. Uh, there's only so many actions that you're going to face. So if you've established rules for those actions, then it becomes about one recognition in the moment, which is hard because the game is moving so fast. And then two, uh, competent and accurate communication. You know, it's something kind of we've addressed with the team recently. He says, you know, Rodrigo is explaining to the group, uh, accurate communication is when one person speaks and another comprehends. You know, it's like one, if I, I said it, he didn't hear me or I said it, he didn't understand me. And it's like the difference between I taught it and they learned it for us as coaches. We take on that responsibility of making sure not that we just gave the information and we say, oh, I did my job. And that's why that's what he gets on me about with it, the idea of overloading guys with scouting. You know, he says that it just you say, Oh, I did my job. I covered all the bases. I gave them all the information. Well, you'd have to know your audience. So for us in terms of communication, I thought, you know, kind of over the years, I you know, start to build out a philosophy, start to write down a lot of notes about personally what I would like for my team. And I think, you know, as the, Defensive coordinator, I think communication-wise, we have a long ways to go. But I always said that I always wanted my team or our teams to be the most talkative teams in the world, you know. Uh, and you, I think, I don't know, maybe it's Kelvin Sampson. Somebody said you can, you can hear a, a great team uh, before you see them. And communicative teams, talkative teams, they're intimidating to play against. I think all of that is true. But you get into this social media generation where – Guys' communication skills are severely undermined. They don't, they don't have their voice. They don't trust their voice. They're scared to speak. You know, early, loud, repetitive is a foreign concept to many of these guys, especially the young bigs who are kind of tame and in, inside themselves. And that's an everyday process to, to demand that from them, early, loud, repetitive, early, loud, repetitive. I tell, you know, when we're making defensive mistakes, I'm reviewing individual film with guys and I'm saying, Whatever the game plan was, whatever we said for you to do in the moment, whatever is said on the floor, the first person to speak is right. Because if no, you know, it's, it's not about following the game plan in the moment. It's about making sure that everybody who's on the floor is on the same page. So whoever speaks first is right. Just do what they say and we'll be in less trouble than we would be if, if nobody speaks. Because if nobody speaks, someone's getting scored on. And it's, it's probably it's going to be <laughs> right. us. Uh, so I, I wish I had a better answer. I have some, some, some out there ideas about how to build communication and force guys to talk in terms of like, you know, blindfolding and making one person be the eyes of the rest of the four. And, uh, I mean, I would, I mean, I like I, I, you have to really stretch to think, and I think it's a challenge that every coach has. How do I get my teams to talk? You know, I think about back to Duke, he said that offensively and defensively they just call everything that they do they're they're calling out i'm curling i'm curling i'm popping i'm popping and just building the habit of of speaking you know and i think uh i'm probably you know a little bit of a tangent but you know rodrigo is maybe the most meticulous uh, person who spent probably spends the most time i've ever seen practice planning and it's because he and I'm learning so much from him. He, he alludes to the fact that coaching 
is the art of habit building. So your practice, you need to be extremely mindful about each of the habits you are trying to cultivate through each phase of the practice, through each segment, and stacking those things together. Like, does one fit after the other sequentially to reinforce the habits you want to develop, or is one undoing the other? Versus, you know, like how long you stay in half court versus full court if you want the habit of winning the first three steps and pitching it out ahead and playing with speed. How long do you stay in the half court? All these things are so delicate. How do you cultivate communication? How all these things, it, it requires an in, incredible amount of attention to detail. And I'm, I'm still, sure. I'm still, you know, riding the learning curve, so to speak with him. He's, he's a different level. You're going to be a newly promoted team into the BBL and you've kind of already touched on it with your communication and building habits but what are you and Rodrigo, your coaching staff, what are the challenges of being a newly promoted team? What are the habits you guys really think you need to build to have success your first year into uh, the Bundesliga? I think it was a point we recently made, especially with so many returners. This is a group that had a great deal of success at, at, at a level one notch lower, one one. And he said, I think it's one of our, our veterans who said, right now, everybody is, was, who was used to being open has 0.5 less seconds to make their decision, to get their shot off, just a fraction, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's speeding us up. So adapting to the speed, the physicality, you know, I think, I think back to, uh, you know, a few of these preseason games where we had it going. And then, you know, they start, they start really, you know, getting into us physically and it, and, it, and it rattles us a little bit, you know, with our youth, with our inexperience in certain positions. And I think uh, this preseason has been so, so helpful for us. You know, the learning curve, the free lumps, you know, you make your mistakes for free. Yeah, I'd say take as many preseason games as you can uh, with, a, with a young group. Uh, so for us, it's half-court execution. Uh, with physicality, with denial, with length and athleticism that you maybe don't face across the board, at least in the pro A. Uh, that you know, you guys have the edit of, of their play of our playbook from last season. Yeah, we're flowing through actions, we're sprinting, we're getting baskets off of cuts. Uh, just a different size, a different athleticism, a different level uh, where some of those things aren't there anymore, or they are. They just have to be done that much better where brushing a guy in the screen might have freed him up for the shuffle cut. Now you got to nail the guy. And now everything, every, every part of that sequence is one step slower because you had to stop to screen as opposed to brushing. That's a, you know, a microcosm of, of what we were facing on a daily basis. And then it's just about under, uh, establishing our identity and finding that, that sense of urgency that we are, we've, we've moved from the big guy on the block. You know, we we go into every game as, as a favorite, you know, and confidence to, we've got a lot to prove, you know, to, we need to prove that we belong at this level and adopting that mentality and flipping that switch is not easy for guys who have had two years, basically, you know, they kind of missed an opportunity to get promoted the year prior. They felt like, and by the standings, you know, I think two years ago, they were also at the top of the pro a uh, two years of pretty, pretty consistent success. And now you have to adjust to pray to predator or predator to pray. 
And that's a mentality shift that's still being cultivated every day. Like we have to go out with an incredible sense of urgency if we want to prove that we belong as well as adapting our timing, our speed, our physicality to the level, you know? So uh, that's very much still a work in progress and we won't know where, how, how well we've adapted until I guess November 7th. Talking about the difficulty of moving to a higher level and all that that entails from the, again, the defensive side of the ball, what have you seen so far and in your career that are some of the most difficult actions to prepare for or to go against? And, uh, of course, there are actions that are difficult to guard just in their basic premise. You know, angles, spacing. I think back to I think to things I've liked, like uh, Berlin's flex cut. You know, they got Gidraitis flying across the five, and now with Sigma at the top. And if you help too much on the on the sh- on the on the cross screen, you've got you know Landry Noko ducking in his man while X five is bumping. Uh, something that Obradovich liked to do for a long time, uh, you know, ducking in a guy right after he set a cross screen. It puts you kind of in a quandary. So there's there's positioning wise uh, ways that you're manipulating space and and the the deep the principles of a defense that 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 puts you in a tough spot. But I think it's more so going back that the the hard part the hardest thing to guard in any defense is kind of how we're trying to build our offense is, yeah, you've got actions. And I, I think it was Coach Frischilla talking about, and on your guys' podcast, talking about uh, a little bit of the play after the play and reverse engineering your offense. The teams that are good at, there are, like I said, there are, there are only so many coverages. And I've never seen a ball screen without a coverage. There's going to be a coverage, and that's going to be, that's why I said, I talked, uh, I think on one of, the the clinics during quarantine about building your offense through conditional logic there's going to be an if statement and a then statement if x then y and if everybody knows your if and and the response to each to each x as a team if you have a coordinated effort those teams are impossible to guard because you can't take away everything and if they know which decision you've made and how to play from there yeah you're going to be chasing your tail most of the time you know uh, all of all of these really simple fundamentals that exploit principles: hedge, short roll, corner, you know, set, low man cut. You can't really take that away. And it's interesting to see the development of Europe's response to short roll play, uh, low man stepping up all the way, charge circle, forty five drifting, you know, sh- defender shifting down to take away the corner, and now big recovering to the shooter on the forty five. And now it's a contested three, but it's still an open shot, you know, because uh, you know your automatics and you know uh, hitting the short roll is the undoing of the, of the hard hedge. Uh, you know uh, the quick show, turning the corner, is probably you're going to be your most effective, forcing a late switch, skipping it out. So teams that, I mean, this is why, Coach Prashila said it and why it's effective because you can't take away everything. So the teams that are well schooled and what their automatics are, what their principles are, uh, cuts. You know, everybody's ta- asking, oh, how, how, does Co- how does Rodrigo teach cuts? What, what do you guys do? You guys, they were an incredible cutting team. Well, there are principles and then there are automatics. Balls in this position driving down this part of the floor, 
these, this person is going to be responsible for help. And then the second person who's supposed to filter down, you beat that. You beat him by cutting before he knows he's supposed to be rotating to you. you know? And that's where openings materialize. So we, you know, we, we get into working on our defense and we open up the cuts. We know the cuts are coming. There are cuts. There are systems. And we're still getting beat. You know, there, are, there are things you can't take away and you just worry about the, the team that knows you say as a coach know your nose well they also know their yeses they know when they're supposed to be doing things and you say okay maybe we just switch everything and just level everybody off keep them in front of us force over a hand but yeah. then you talk about you know what you know we call red offense you know as red the coverage how do i attack the switch if you have coordinated responses to everything and this is where you know coaches uh show their quality, the depth of thought, the thoroughness of thought, the level of preparation. Do, do I send a group out on the floor that has an answer to every situation they might face? At the early part of the season, is that really possible? Probably not. But you want to cover as much of the curriculum as you can before you send the kids to the test. Great stuff there. Um, kind of what I take away and you talk about the offense has their automatics and, you know, a good term that Pannon uses the offense wants to start putting the defense in a blender. So then the closeouts become really important for the defense. What do you emphasize in your own personal opinion or with Chemnitz and the closeouts and how do you teach the closeouts? I'm recognizing thinking about that every day, how you teach closeouts, who are you teaching them to, Different players need to close out differently. I've recently talked to two of our six, nine guys about leverage your length. You do not need to close out as close and as aggressively as me. You know, I need to sprint almost all the way out and break down late to have any impact on that shot. Leverage your length because I can get that close and maybe I can. We talk about winning the first step, win that first dribble means that push step slide and wall off trying to guess which way you're or try to influence which way that 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 shooter is going to drive when he puts the ball down because you know you get into his mind into his mental space you get him to put the ball down now push step slide level off with your chest trying to win the first dribble but a smaller player has less reaction time is more nimble more quick he can be closer and still potentially win that first dribble we get our big guys running out and they're pretty mobile themselves. But even so, our evidence from the preseason says we, we send them out to that same distance. They can't, they can't recover. They can't wall off. They can't, they're, now they're opening up their hips and we're in rotation. So we talk about you know, leveraging length. We go through sequences every day. Who are we closing out at? Average shooter, great shooter. Average shooter, I'm going to break down early and I'm going I'm, I'm to stay on my feet. I'm just going to stick hand, turn and hit great shooter. I'm going to break down only the last two steps, that kind of stride stop. And I'm going to, you know, kind of try, we're, we're trying, we, we fouled three, three point shooters this preseason, you know, so we still have a ways to go, but contesting to the side of the body, you know, where I'm, I fly by, I want, we tried it. We want to be second jumper. So we're, we're not giving up Corver threes and shot fake, stay on the line or shot fake and penetration. We want to be, we tried to, instill and that still has a ways to go because we're, we're flying at every shot fake right now uh getting up out of our stance be the second jumper and get to the side of the body 
I, I mean, you know, Rodrigo says all the time, no clinics, Daniel, no clinics. You know, like he doesn't, there's this delicate balance between stopping practice to teach detail and overdoing it. You know, where I say, you know, I'm the young, you know, obsessive where I say, okay, if it's defense, then I want to make sure, you know, your hand goes here, the right, left hand goes here, your foot angles are like this. And he says, let them play. Like, you know, you give them the rudiments, and then, like, don't slow them down with all this information. Don't bog them down, you know. Yeah. Uh, light minds and, and light feet, you know. Let them, let, sure. you know, let them, you know, use their length and athleticism as much as possible and don't slow them down. So, you know, we talk about, oh, maybe I want us closing out on a right-handed shooter with our left hand, a left-handed shooter with our right hand. And we talk about those percentages of how mirroring the ball uh, affects the, sh- the percentages of the shot. We just haven't delved into those details because we just want them to play fast. Yeah. Qu- quick follow-up on the closeout. It's a really interesting situation. I think so many coaches teach it differently. But in your opinion, on a closeout and your team is starting to kind of be in rotation, do you put more emphasis on the actual player who's closing out, you know, taking ownership of stopping the ball or closing out himself um, or is that person more sending the the ball handler or the shooter into your established help side coverage that's coming? The answer to that question we predicated upon a defense that influences in one direction. And we talk about we, we're square. We're okay. square. If we were a no middle or a no baseline team, all of our closeouts would have to subsequently be in that direction. Right. And then we'd know where our help is coming from. But when we're square, that's what we talk so much about trying to win the first dribble and working on, you know, contest, drop down one hard lateral movement, ride the hip. And then whichever way it comes, if it's middle, we have an aggressive stunt. If it's baseline, we have our classic kind of low man rotation. Okay. If I'm beat, I'm flying off and I'm to the weak side and I'm taking the second pass out, the non-receiver. It's kind of that natural ball gets skipped x out if on a baseline drive if you guys follow me yeah no i followed that and last year we did a lot of the texas tech no middle and so what was interesting though was teaching them the closeout because it was always square up on the closeout and be ready to guard where last year was a little bit different where we put the onus on the closeout guy go that way (laughs) could not get beat middle like that was a hundred percent on the closeout defender but if he the, the player went baseline you were trying to try to turn and run with him, but we put more of the onus on that help side defender Roman, coming over. Yeah. So that was the reason for my question. It's very tempting, and it's hard to say, but you worry about. And I think when I, when in the pre, in, you know, in our preparation before the season, when Rodrigo and I were talking about uh, what we wanted to do, and I asked him if he have any interest in influencing the ball one way, and he talked about bad habits. You know that you talk about the same thing where it gets a little tenuous and and nerve-wracking about icing like one time you ice and nobody's there and it's a layup you know you you get into opening up on every closeout uh there's there you where you can drill it down and have it tight you see it can be it's, it's like anything you yeah. know i think we came into the season one of the things i wanted to bring was tagging up and i and now i there's a parallel because i hearken back to a tagging up clinic that Aaron Fernie led and he's saying it's really like anything else you know if you don't if you don't do it well yeah you get your brains beaten out and it's any defensive scheme any defensive scheme you do it 
to the highest level of intensity. You do it with the highest level of, of unanimity, everybody on the same page, and pretty much anything you do can be good. But uh, yeah. yeah, the defense side of the ball is not that hard. I think <laughs> who was the I think Frischilla was saying Frischilla that. said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, damn, Frisch, damn, friend, you really just completely. <laughs> I'm taking that off. I'm taking that off of my LinkedIn. <laughs> we can kind of switch gears and get off of defense a little bit. You know, I know another one of your tasks is kind of individual development. What does individual development look like mid-season? during the season you know how much time are you getting to work with these guys is it individual or is it more kind of small groups or positional groups that is a balance that i'm still refining and i think will be a a long search for me uh because i i grapple with uh, i you know my relationships with the players are rooted in my investment in them both in their service to us and whatever happens next for them kind of just kind of depositing in that piggy bank of the of the future version of that player because uh, that's the carrot at the end of the stick for these guys so know that you know i'm only working on what's going to help me help I, you know, we're only going to work on what's going to help you be good for us is uh it's professional basketball it makes a lot of sense but it doesn't i don't think it gets the best version of that guy uh, because he needs to know that he's being invested in for the, what, what's next, especially for younger players. Uh, or even, I take that back, I take, think about the older forwards that, you know, I say, if you don't, you know, learn, learn to shoot soon, you know, it's going to shorten your career. Talk about career longevity and extending the career and uh, modern bigs being able to shoot a little bit. Let's ha- you may not shoot for us, but let's try to help you. And that becomes about... It, if a guy wants to work on the off day coming back and that time is invested in something that has nothing to do with the team, or I like to, to kind of sandwich it or mix it in. I say, okay, let's warm up with a little bit of what's good for us. And then we'll do some of what's good for you. And maybe we finish with a little bit of what's good for everybody. You know, we try to try to, you know, the, the packaging, the packaging, the narrative, but uh, mid season, well, we don't know here yet, but two years in Russia where we were a, a one game a week team. We were not in any cups. Uh, I know that I, I can imagine what it's going to look like that there, there is enough time and we have tremendous facilities where there's enough baskets where guys can get, get their own work. We're kind of moving to a, a pre-practice program. It's going to start to kind of 15 minutes to address individual needs for guys within our offense. You know, the basic rudiments of things, footwork and passing and, shots in particular spots that guys are going to see more often. We'd like them to get to kind of just start to wire the brain in the morning with those habits, with those, those tendencies and keep refining those. So that'll be part of our pre-practice is it'll be individual and small group, but uh, mid season in uh, player development. Yeah. Our, our team practice, I can see it's never going to be like, let's go to station work or let's go guards and bigs, you know, it's very much us. And if it, if there's less for the team to do, it'll probably just be shorter. And then we'd come back in the evening for, for lifting and shooting and guys come before they stay after we only have practice in the morning. Then that evening is optional individual stuff. Or if I have guys with similar needs, I'll start to group them together. I say, why don't you got two guys come together so that we can go one on zero for 20 minutes and then go one on one, trying to apply it 
because you know skill development is it's the leap from 1v0 to 1v1 is is like going from training wheels to a harley davidson <laughs> for sure it's a it's a big leap but if you don't practice it that way you'll never it'll never you'll never it'll never appear or surface in the game um so uh, i don't think i exactly answered your question but it, when you have one game a week i think the load permits itself allows you i think it's a huge missed opportunity in Europe to not invest more in it because then I, th- I, you know, I argue that doing that consistently over a six month period is the cheapest way to make your team better within one season, within the same season. If you go from preseason to February, by the time you're rolling around the beginning of playoffs, you've got a significantly better roster because everybody improved at one thing, two things. Um, but having a, an intentional and structured and scheduled and dedicated player development program is, it still has a ways to go in Europe just because the yeah. staffs are so small, I guess, and resources are limited, but you could have a printout every day and, you know, try, you know, have guys here do this on your own. If it fails, it fails, but I don't know how many guys, how many teams have gotten to that point. Yeah. How much of a role does uh, film work? do you use or have you used in the past play and the development and how much can you, in your experience, can you show them that they actually retain or where it has like diminishing returns? I think within the, what almost everything is individual development. So one of my responsibilities is post game individual film where like coach is going to handle kind of the cleaning up the game and we'll watch an edit uh, the, 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 whenever we practice next in the morning before the game, kind of team concepts, things we did well, things we could do better. And then over the course of the week, I'll get with guys individually and review highlights, lowlights, things for improvement from that game. Like in, there's a lot of, of room for, for positive reinforcement about like, ah, you see, this is, this is exactly what we've been working on. You know, that, that pitch ahead or, that that slow slow finish through contact uh look how you set your feet you got to the corner good job shortening the pass shaping up quick release whatever we've been emphasizing when when it surfaces in the game i'm eager for those clips and all that'll definitely be part of it and i say uh, you see this is what i meant when i said you're not getting to the hip and he gets clipped with the screen you know kind of just visual reinforcement of things they're doing well versus things they could be doing better and especially whenever I'm watching film of another team and I see a player do something that I've been asking that player to do or we've been trying to improve, it's recorded. I'm putting it on WhatsApp. I'm sending it to them. Say, you see, this is exactly what I was talking about. And I'll just, whenever, you know, tr- ne- try to never miss a teaching opportunity. Yeah. I think it's something that teachers and coaches say alike. And I see whenever I see something that I think could be a good visual for those guys, I'll just send it out on WhatsApp. It's a great tool for us. And then most of the post game stuff with 12 guys and, you know, that being my individual responsibility, maybe for some players that'll start to be sent out on WhatsApp. And then some guys will be face to face conversations and we'll cycle through it. It's just the most important. And the most important thing is that everybody gets individual feedback over the course of the week before the next game. Because like I said, you don't want to miss any teaching opportunities. This is nothing worse than having been in a situation where, there was something that needed to be addressed or corrected and I didn't get to it and it got repeated the next game. And I was like, that's totally my fault. You know, that was completely avoidable. If I had just shared that information, if I had explained that, 
to him because over the course of a, a life practice, you can't get to everybody mm-hmm. in that moment. Interested from your perspective, you being a younger guy in your mid-20s at this point, and you're coaching guys that are just as old as you and probably a lot of guys that are older that are professional athletes, men with families and kids and all that. And then you're right in the middle of it trying to coach them, help them, give them critical feedback. How are you able to do that at such a young age? I I hope that I did a good job, I think, early on going to my first year, two years in Russia where I was, you know, coaching a lot of guys older than me, especially I go in at 23, turning 24. It was the majority that were older. And I tried to, I think, go in, first of all, with the understanding that maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not going to be able to teach them anything. So first of all, let me go in with a servant mentality. Like sweat equity is real. Like uh, let me just make myself available, do whatever, you know, be accessible invest in the player, try to help him with something, find anything to kind of just enter as an entry point into that relationship, you know, and say the, the relationship protects the message is a, a great phrase of my, a quote I like. And it's the essence of coaching. The relationship protects the message, especially from somebody where I'm not going to be flexing my authority or my experience. That would be misguided. That is not my strength. My strength is in and building rapport and, and, and being accessible and bringing positive energy. And then once I get to that point and I've built that trust, yeah, they'll let you critique them. The best players. I've got Giannis Blooms was 36-year-old, you know, played in Panathinaikos, played in Spain and Bilbao for a long time, Latvian national team player, and highly regarded throughout Europe. And he still wanted to be coached. You know, I think about the, these 30-plus-year-old guys, Daryl Monroe last year in Israel, the guy's a genius. The guy's a genius of basketball, played for Larry Nega and George Jackson. Uh, he wanted to be coached. He wanted, to, you know, he, if I saw something, it could, you build that trust slowly. I don't go in saying, all right, Daryl, listen, this is how you're going to play with your back to the basket. I think the guy's a genius. You respect their experience. You respect their intelligence. You respect that. Good players are got that way for a reason. They see the game in a certain way. And I just try to be open first and foremost to what I could learn from them. And if you go in with that humility, with a positive energy, and with the commitment to sweat equity, uh, you give yourself a pretty good chance to develop a rapport in which, you know, the, the, the hardest part is being a young coach and, and maintaining that line of accountability. How do I hold the guy accountable when you've built almost this buddy-buddy rapport. And I probably told the wrong side of that line in the first year, year and a half. But if you have good guys and you've built the right rapport with them, the respect is enough, you know, because I I think I had earned their respect and that allowed me to coach and correct them. But correction versus accountability sometimes is two different things. I think I saw a recording on Twitter from Kelvin Sampson at Houston and he said one number one problem with young coaches is that they they're 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 afraid of confrontation when you have to really hold a guy accountable it's gut check time and I say I think you guys have forgotten what it's like to be an assistant coach you know (laughs) we don't we're not always vested with that authority but uh yeah it's true it's 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 an it's an iterative process it takes time 
it's it's not the easiest thing to do but if you the most important thing is get the right people on the bus if you have good people that and they want to be coached you build the rapport you sweat equity positive energy uh, attention to detail you know being say, showing that you're looking for ways to get them better then they're usually going to be highly receptive to that feedback and that's that's what your role is as a coach it's not to be the authoritative dictator no yeah i've got them running sprints now i'm coaching coach is it is a vehicle designed to get people of importance from where they are to where they ought to be going right so if i can facilitate somebody's progression towards the next to their endpoint or to their next destination like then i'm coaching with regardless of the age of that guy can i help them coach you seem like you're a very self-reflective like always improving growth mindset kind of a guy i'm wondering how you handle failure a bad game a poor practice something doesn't go your way what do you do as a coach what's your next steps when I, 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 one of my obsessions is shooting. It's like I, if you can help a guy be a better shooter, you can probably, you know, increase his value substantially. You know, you take a non-shooter to a competent shooter or a competent shooter to a great shooter or a great shooter to a world-class shooter. It's always that kind of like that 1%. And I, I say that because you're helping a guy with his shot and, 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 he, and he, he needs to make five in a row. And he misses, he gets four in a row, he misses the fifth one. And I say, my first response is, awesome, more reps. Let's go, more reps. So uh, it's how we, you know, what everything is, is our reaction to it. It's not the event, it's our reaction to it that gener- that fosters that feeling. That event itself had no impact on who we are or the moment, you know, and we allow the moment to alter our perception of what's actually happening. And I use that language a lot when I say, a guy has to make, again, whatever, five in a row, and I say, you're letting the drill in the moment change what it actually is. All we're asking you to do is shoot the ball, make one and make one and make one and make one. If you treat each shot separately, then the amount of consecutive becomes totally irrelevant. And that becomes where you get into the, the mindset and athlete performance and the mental state. And you try to uh, reflect a behavior and a level of composure and a, a resilience and a grit because the, the fish rots from the head and the team is going to emulate the persona of the coach. And I tried to always emulate, okay, that's over. What can we do next? What, what, the only thing we can impact is whatever happens next. So I think I try to be self-reflective and I try to think about, I don't see it as failure. Failure is when I say, no, I, I suck at this. I'm done. I give up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a bit of a Kobeism. What do you think about it's fall down eight, get up nine. These, these become very trite. They become very cliche, but there's, there is a morsel of truth to them. That's why they survive. That's why they pervade, you know, society because there's, there's, there's truth to them. They, they mean something to people where you say, I can stop or, or I can learn from it and I can, you know, I can move on, you know? So going early on in the career where you're kind of dwelling on a loss, Life goes on. I think Ryan does a great job of talking all the time about what we do is not really that important. If the game only was mattered because it's about wins and losses, then this job is going to be pretty empty. So it's about investing in the people that we work with, improving them, fostering you know meaningful relationships, and and hopefully achieving something meaningful in the process because it's 
it's really the journey more so than the destination. You'll hear people say that too. I'm just spewing cliches. I'm like a fountain. <laughs> but uh, when you talk about, you know, dealing with adversity, dealing with failure, I think perspective is extremely, it's invaluable in doing so. When you can remember the, 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 the actual value of the moment, the actual value of what you're doing, how important it is, that's delicate because you can say, ah, oh, this is basketball. Why does it matter? You know, people are dying uh, all over the world. You can say that's fair. But uh, one of my favorite books is Tom Brady. It, it, it's uh, one of his favorites, The Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Four Agreements is kind of, I think it's Mexican or, or South American mysticism. The fourth one is always do your best. You know, just be just about ways to live meaningfully, live in a way that that resonates with you. It's like at the end of the day, I can lay my head down at night, say I did my best. That wasn't sufficient today. Let me recap and try it again. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe and pass this on. Have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.